Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Gary. I'm an alcoholic addict. Everybody who answered, hi, Gary, just blew their anonymity. Uh, what you're going to hear from me today in about, for about 40 minutes is going to be what's known as an AA pitch. Uh, we in, we on the program, when we go around speaking, when we pitch, uh, it's uh, what it was like, what happened, what, it, what it's like now. And I'm a little unusual in that I have two what it was like, two what happened. Only one what it's like now, because I am a tribute to monumental Irish and Welsh stubbornness and stupidity. I drank and used for about 13 to 15 years, and then I quit for the wrong reasons. But I didn't need any program. I was going to do it on my own. See? So for the next 19 years, I was on a white-knuckle drive drunk. And the pain was incredible, and the, and the sorrow and the anguish was 100 times worse than when I drank and used, because all I did was stop the anesthetic. See, I stopped the alcohol and the drugs. But I didn't do anything about the use, which is the main problem for all of us. Uh, I say I'm an alcoholic addict. I, as far as I can remember, I know my mother was an alcoholic. And this disease can be inherited. But as far back as I can remember, all the way back to my childhood, as far back as I could possibly go, I can't remember ever living a day when the four horsemen of the alcoholic weren't riding my shoulder. That's terror, bewilderment, anxiety, and despair. Uh, we were raised by an Irish Catholic father, a very famous man in show business. Um, in his defense, i got to say that he looked around Hollywood at the time I was born and didn't like what he saw. He saw a lot of kids doing things wrong and getting a lot of money thrown at them, cracking up cars and getting new cars, and getting thrown in jail, and getting bailed out of jail, and just more money thrown at him and left alone. And he called them Hollywood kids, and he says, I'm not going to have any Hollywood kids in my house. By God, he didn't. What he saw scared him bad enough, I guess, so that when he could have done about a 90-degree turn, he did about a 180. And we had rules and regulations for everything. It was his, it was his belief that he could mold uh, young men into into what he wanted, uh, into his way of thinking, to his kind of a man, by using uh, discipline and corporal and emotional and mental punishment on them. There were rules for every hour of the day. And there were punishments for every rule. Uh, there was never your side to the story. If you broke a rule, you were in front of his desk, and he said, did you do it? You said yes, and he said, why? And he said, I don't know, because that was the safe answer. If you said, if you gave a reason, then he then he tongue-lashed you pretty good before you got the whipping. So the best thing to do is just say, I don't know, and then you just got called stupid. And when you got whipped, you got bent across the you, We, me and my brothers, we got bent across the couch. He took our pants down, and he had a leather belt about that wide, and he had big silver conchos on it with little points sticking out. And very calmly, without any uh, hysterics or any uh, screaming or yelling or anything, we would bend us over, and he would whip us till we bled. That was the time to stop. And it was always with an attitude of, I don't know why you guys make me do this to you. I don't know why you don't behave. But that's how we got it. Uh, later in life, when we got bigger, too big for the belt, we got bent over a couch in the hallway, and he had a hardwood and a lock of cane, and he used to step into us with it just like he was swinging a baseball bat. The last lesson I got from him was when I was about 18, 19 years old. I was 5'10", 190, and I was a linebacker. And he bent me over that couch and me 13 times with that thing. I took it away, and I broke it. I told him if he ever touched me again, I'd kill him. He started to put his hands up, and I said, don't mess with me. I said, don't give me that Marcus Queensberry shit. I said, I'm a street fighter. I'll break this lamp over your head. I'll break, I'll hit you with the table, the chair, anything else I got in the room. And the funny part of it was, he, he looked at me, he looked me up and down, he kind of smiled and nodded his head and walked away. Like he had been expecting that for years, you know. Left me all nervous and jittery and shaky with a dry mouth because all the adrenaline was pumping. I was ready for a fight and didn't get one. 
So he fooled me again, see? One more time. I, all of a sudden I realized I was at war for the last five years all by myself. He hadn't been fighting at all. But like I say from the beginning, the rules and regulations for everything. We even had stuff like if we if two of us two of us slept in a room, two to a room, there was four of us. In the morning we were supposed to get up at a certain hour. If we were caught whispering between the beds before that hour, anybody who caught us was allowed to whip us. Uh, if we went if we went to school and left something on the floor of our room, the next day we had to go to school with whatever article that was tied around our neck. Be it a sock or a pair of shorts or whatever the hell it was, you know. Uh, certain hours to get up, certain hours to go to bed, certain hours to be in the car, no fighting in the car. Certain things to do in school. When he dropped us off, every school he ever sent us to, he said, you take them. And he said, if they do anything wrong, you punish them and let me know. When they get home, I'll give it to them. And that's the way it went. He wanted to make sure that we had discipline in our lives at all times, so we went to Catholic military school. See? So there wasn't any chance of never having no anything but discipline on our heads. Um, what that created, as far as I can't speak for my brothers, but for what went on inside of me was that I was always afraid. I was always afraid I was going to break the rules. I always knew I was going to break them. The anxiety was which rule was I going to break? You know, the bewilderment was when, and then the despair was once I'd done it, I knew it was over. And I had to wait till that evening came to get that over a cow, whatever the hell it was going to be, but I knew I was going to get whipped. Um, Evidently, he was trying to get a message across to us some way. Uh, what he didn't know was me with my little alcoholic head, being born an alcoholic, I didn't see reality the same way everybody else does. And I'm one of these guys. When you want to beat something into my head, I don't understand what you're trying to beat into my head because I'm going to get real busy fighting the messenger. I don't hear the message. All I want to do is take you down. All I want to do is make sure you don't win. I don't care what happens to me, but you ain't going to win. And that's what I did. And I never heard anything he tried to tell me. I never did anything. I never heard any good in anything he tried. All it was to me was just a deadly 24-hour-a-day head-on fight with a man who didn't like me too much, and I damn sure didn't like him. He didn't like the size of my body, and he, he didn't like the fact that I had a big white ass on me. Of course, he had one, too. That's probably what he didn't like, see. So he was going to give me a... He, he, he got into the weight control business. See, he was going to make me weigh a certain thing. He picked the figure out of an air and said I had to weigh that every Tuesday. And if I didn't weigh that... I got a lick. So that would create a thing where every Tuesday I'd be right on that mark, man. I'd be right on what he told me to weigh. And then, whew, tremendous relief. Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, and Friday, I'd be in the kitchen after dark sneaking stuff to eat. I, you know, I could get five pieces of candy out of a seed box without you ever knowing they were gone. And I'd spread the papers under the ones that were still there and move them all around, set them up. And I'd hide the candy under the bedpost and wait for my brother to go to sleep. So I didn't even trust him. Yeah. And I'd jam the candy in my mouth along about Friday. I'd be seven pounds overweight. Then I'd have to go through the house steaming all the milk and magnesia I could find and all the X-lax and every other damn thing. And I'd starve myself for three days and run the track. And then Tuesday would come and I'd get back on that scale and I'd either be that much over and I'd get a weapon or that much under. And I'd be okay for another week. Tremendous relief and it's time to, to, to binge again. So I set that up for myself early in life. I always had feelings of, of terror. I never knew what the hell I was supposed to be. I never knew what I was and I never knew what I was supposed to be. My dad and mom kept telling me I was an ordinary, I was just no better than anybody else. I was an ordinary kid, just like all the other kids in the class, and I wasn't expected, I wasn't supposed to feel I was any better or any different than anybody else. And that worked fine in the house. But then when we got out of the house and we got to school, there were those people who, my mother said, watch out for the ones that, the grown-ups that are nice to you because they want to get to your old man. And nobody ever told me about the grown-ups that we had decided in their heads that we, had, that we had it easy all our lives, so therefore they were going to make sure that we knew what life was really about. And those folks don't communicate to one another. So each one of them thinks they're the only one doing it. Okay. And Dad, I remember him saying one time, he didn't. He thought everybody out there was going to be so nice to us that he was going to have to be hard on us at home to let us know what reality was like. Okay. And none of the dudes ever checked with each other. 
you know, they didn't do any talking, I guess. So, and then, of course, the relationship as far as other kids went. Uh, I noticed right from the beginning, you know, you sit down in the classroom, you call a roll, you stick up your hand, and recess the three guys waiting to beat your head in. And that's it. I took a dim view of that, but I was too slow to run. And I got pretty mean. I used to get pretty mean about it. I had a terrible temper right from the time I was a kid. And I learned early in life that it didn't hurt so bad getting hit if you hit back. And I learned that if you took a chunk out of somebody or if you kicked him someplace where it hurt and you made him bleed somehow, even if he won, the next day he wasn't looking for you. He was looking for some chunk that was going to walk away or run from him, see? So I learned I didn't have to win the fight. All I had to do was get in it and, and, and beat on somebody and get crazy enough so that they were scared of me or didn't want no part of me no more, and then they'd leave me alone. And that was my object in life as far as growing up with other guys my age was to get them to leave me the hell alone. I didn't want to be friends with them. I couldn't have, I didn't feel like I'd have any friends because we had such strict rules at home that no kid would come to our house. If one did come to our house, he never came back. You know, we had to go to bed at 8 o'clock at night and, you know, until we were 14, 15, 16 years old. And, and uh, everywhere we went, we had to have somebody following us. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't an admin. And, of course, when a kid came to our house, he had to live under our rules. We didn't get a break and get to live under his. So it was a constant feeling of, I'm never going to do I'm never going to do it all. Between the Catholic Church, which I, I'm not knocking the Catholic religion, see, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm perceiving, I'm, I'm perceiving reality through a screen that isn't real. See, I have in, in my religion, I'm hearing nothing but God loves your butt, and then a page and a half of how He's going to kick my ass if I look sideways, you know. And and the other kids, they're hearing God loves your butt, and they're hearing a little thing over here. I guess I don't know. They stuck with me. I got I got scared of God as I was scared of my father. To me, the two of them were like. Well, when I was real little, I thought they were related. <laughs> Well, you know, everywhere I went, uh, I'd be sitting in a car at a gas station or in school grounds or wherever I'd be, adults would run up to me in droves and tell me how wonderful my father was and how great he was to them and, and how, how what a great thing he'd done for their family was singing this song or that song. And he always acted like he was in love with them. And so what that set up for me was, Jesus, the whole world knows him and loves him. He loves him and, and knows the whole world. But he don't love me and I don't love him, so I'm the bad guy. See? He always told me I was the bad guy. He always said I was stupid, fat. Ignorant. He used to get me in front of, he used to do little things like get me in front of some friends of his. You know, the Hope and, uh, and Bill Morrow and people like that would be around. And his favorite trick was to go, hey, Satchel ass, bring me that. Hey, Bucket Butt, bring that, come on over here. And they'd all laugh like hell. They thought that was funny, you know, those nicknames. And I'd go do what he said and everything else. But in my head, all I was thinking was, one day I'm going to be half as big as you. And when I do, man, I'm going to rip you through it. I'm going to tear your head off. And I was humiliated every time he did it. And every time he did it, it just stuck one more knife in my gut, man. And one more time to get even. One more chalk mark. One more mark in my little metal blackboard. I'm going to get even for all of this. And I just kept marking them off. And nobody knew what was going on. I kept it quiet. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust adults. I didn't trust kids. I didn't trust anybody. I had my own little life going on in my head. What it was going to, where I was going to be and where I was going to go with what I did. In the outside world, we were like four little monkeys that belonged to somebody, and, and Dad's reputation was a big family man, so we always had these layouts and magazines and stuff like that, and we'd all dress up in little funny, little funny diamond sweaters, you know, the Margot sweaters, and uh, run down sitting sit in a row, and we got to where the press to talk to us. He'd say to us before we went downstairs, he said, what goes on inside this house, don't ever leave this house. We said, okay. So we'd get down there, and he'd be sitting on the side, and we'd be watching him. Now, we got some newspaper people to talk to us. We didn't know what the hell they were asking, but we could read their tone of voice and their body English. So you saw a guy going, and it was there, wasn't that good? And we go, yeah, that was fine. No, sure, you know. And they were, I don't think we, oh no, no, you know, we, we just did that. Four of us, just like, just like four little gorillas, just sitting there like this. You know, then after they left, Dad would always say, back in the trunk. That was his favorite thing. Which means we went upstairs and took off the good clothes and got back in the other clothes and went out in the yard and did our chores or whatever the hell he had us to do, see. 
Uh, I guess he figured that he was going to uh, make us into what he wanted us to be, lawyers and doctors and, and everything else. But I didn't hear none of that, because like I said, I got to fight in the messenger so hard, I didn't hear any of the message. I was developing a, an attitude about myself of, of self-worthlessness, low self-esteem. Uh, I couldn't do much of anything right. I didn't seem to be able to please anybody. I couldn't keep all the rules of my religion. I couldn't keep all the rules at home. I didn't seem to be able to get along with, with kids, kids in school. And then I found one out. When I was about third or fourth grade, I got into sports. I got into baseball and football. And I got goddamn good at it. And I loved it. And it became my life. Number one reason it kept me out of the house. See, if I was on a football or a baseball team, I didn't have to go home until 5.30 in the afternoon. Now, that meant that meant that I could stay out till maybe Mom was passed out. See, my A day was that Dad was on the road and Mom was passed out. And we had a little little gnome of a housekeeper named Georgie who was a fanatical devotee to my mother and, and my father. She was taking care of my mother, hiding my mother from us so we didn't know what was happening, supposedly. I could run upstairs, take a shower, uh, go down and get something to eat, do my homework, and then get in bed and listen to the radio. It's time to go to sleep. And that was an A day for me. But we came home early. My mother was still up. She was still awake. The rule of the house was that you had to go across the bedroom and kiss her hello. She was always in bed, and you had to kiss her hello. Now, the game was this. As you crossed the room, this is for the ACAs of you out there. As you crossed the room, you had to say, you said things like, Hi, Mom, how are you? What's going on today? What's happening? What time? Any, any questions to get her to answer back so you could read is she drunk or sober? Is, if she is drunk, how drunk is she? Because the rule was to get over to her and lean over and give her a kiss hello. And sometimes if she was drunk, she slapped you in the face instead of kissing you. So the game was, who's going to get hit in the mush? See, now, if you knew ahead of time, if you could read it good enough, crossing the room. So you got there, as you leaned down to kiss her, you turned your head real quick and you got it here. See, that was the day's winner. The loser was the guy who didn't read it right and got it right in, right in the face. And everybody made fun of him for about half an hour. See, These are the little games you play. When you're living with an alcoholic. Like I say, I, when I used to see my mother, I just, I just digress for a minute here. When I used to see my mother drink, I remember saying to myself, God damn, I never want to do that. How come she does that? Why don't she stop that? She's so nice when she's not drinking. Why does she do that? You know, that was those, in those days, that was the attitude, you know, we didn't know any better, and I was only a kid. I thought, I thought she just drank because she wanted to. You know, it never dawned on me that she had no control over it whatsoever. Or anybody else, for that matter. But the one out for me was sports. And I got pretty good at it. And I built a little fantasy in my head. It was going to set me free. It was my first geographic, mental geographic. I was going to become a professional athlete, which was going to have nothing to do with my father and his business, or the people in his business, or anything else. And I was going to be good enough so I'd make a name for myself on my own. And I realized to do that, I was going to have to make some moves because I knew I wasn't ever going to be able to get a scholarship anywhere because everybody knew my father, everybody knew my father had money, they don't give scholarships to people with money. So, okay, I'm going to have to do it on a rep. I'm going to have to find a good high school, a good four-year program, go there, build a rep, go on to college on that rep, and then go from there. And this was my little dream. See, but I didn't share this with anybody. Like I said, I didn't trust anybody. I didn't talk. People say, how you feeling? Fine. What's going on? Everything's fine. Well, why'd you do that? I don't know. And that's how I talked to people. They never, I wouldn't let anybody inside, man. Nobody. And when it came time to go fulfill this thing, I was in the ninth grade of a, of a military school down here, and I checked with the CIF, and they said, no, that doesn't count as freshman year. You have four years eligibility. So I said, great. I, I really fooled the old man. I picked a, a Jesuit Catholic boarding school in San Jose, California, known as Bellarmine. I picked it because they had great teams up there, and I knew that would be a good place to play ball. 
When I said Jesuits to my dad, he just chortled with glee because he'd been educated by the Jesuits, but he knew damn well they were disciplinarians. And he knew when you go to a Jesuit school, you do get educated. Because if your grades start to flip, they call you in and they want to know why. If you can't tell them, they put a tutor on your butt. If that ain't enough, they put you to extra study hall. When you go through a Jesuit high school, you will graduate. And you will know something. That's for sure. So Dad was real pleased with that move, and he sent me on up there, and I'll never forget the freshman year up there. First day, they called us in, and they told us how, when we were going to be allowed off campus. And they said Friday nights till 10.30, Saturday nights till 11, and Sunday afternoons from 1 to 5. And then freshmen let out a wail, screaming and hollering, Nazi prison camp, it's all for God, how can we stand? I, I heard all this, and I started to wail just like them. But inside, I was jumping for joy, because that's more freedom than I ever had in my whole damn life. I wouldn't have known what the hell to do with all that time. You know, I had to make things up. But to make a long story short, because we were running short on time, I, I went through there, and, and exactly what was supposed to happen was happening. I was doing real good at sports. And my, little, my little dream world was going real good. The studies were going good because I had the thumb on me. I had somebody watching me all the time, making sure I was there. There were study halls, and you had to go study. So, you know, it was kind of like home in that respect, so I was used to that. So I went along. I got good enough grades to get into Stanford. Everything's progressing real good, football and baseball. I'm doing real well. I'm a catcher and a linebacker. Perfect position for an alcoholic. You know, paranoid schizophrenic position. The world's out to get me. They're all coming to get me, and they're coming to get me now, you know. And if I don't kill them first, they're going to kill me. So I was, I was sensational. I was a little bigger than I am now. I weighed about 210 then. And uh, everything was proceeding along very well. And in the spring practice of my senior year, the CIF called up and said, we changed our mind. We're going to count that ninth grade thing you did at the military school, and so you're not going to be eligible your senior year. Well, when that happened, uh, that was the end of my dream. But I didn't share that with anybody either. Uh, right then is when I started to think of myself as a loser, and I was never going to be nothing but a loser, and that's how life was going to be for me. And so if that's the way it was going to be, okay. But I didn't want any part of it. I didn't want to be around long, and I didn't care what was happening. Now, the study stayed up for the, for the senior year because the discipline was still there. But right then is when I started to drink. And I mean drink heavy. When I started to drink, I was a pig. I never, I can't ever remember in my lifetime going out to have a drink with somebody. I said, now let's have a drink. Or let's get warm and sociable. Man, I drank to get blasted. I drank to get pissed. I drank to get just flat out drunk, man, and just get out of it. My whole thing, every time I went to get drunk, it was to get out of it. I drank with both hands as fast and as hard as I could till I fell over in the blackout. And that's how I drank. I didn't get to do too much of that in high school, because we still had the, the thumb screws on us pretty good. But we did get around, we did get around to where I was staying over with, on the weekends with some day students, and we'd go to pick up a case of uh, quartz, and then we'd go to the drive-in and drink that, and we'd wait for somebody to say something wrong, and then we'd start a fight and rip up the joint and then leave. You know, that became a, that became a pattern. Violence became, violence was, was just part of my life, right from, right from the get-go. Like the things I shared about with you earlier were happening. And it's, to me, uh, the way I made friends was that, you know, I walked into a new place, a new situation. There were guys there who wanted to kick my ass. And so we had it out. And when the fight was over, we, we, we laughed and wiped the blood off one another. And then we went ahead and, and became friends. And we did whatever we did. So that, that was the way you made friends, as far as I was concerned. You know, you, always, you walked in, you were the new guy. And you had to prove yourself. And when you did, they liked you and it was okay. But you always had to do that. So that, that, was, that was my life, you know. And I went on. And then, like I said, I went on from there to Stanford. And I got into college. And grades were good enough. I tried to play ball up there, but I had a bad knee. I'd done my shoulder in by that time. I was trying to play drunk and wired, see, because I had been taking the speed since I was about 12 years old, because the old man was worried about my weight. And in came, at that time, in came the diet doctors. 
Well, he thought they were great. So he sent me to the diet doctor, and the doctor gave me a box full of pills, and I came home, and I took the pills, and he paid the doctor, and I lost weight. So that was sensational. He loved that. I loved it too, man, because my jaw was getting wired like this. I said, hey, I feel fine. Everything's good. My whole thing was to walk through the wall, not open the door, you know. <laughs> Shit. Oh, yeah, I was great. I felt wonderful all the time like this, you know. And geez, he thought my mental attitude was changing. He thought I was making change for the better. So I was always on speed. And then I got to drinking heavy, like I said. And it, it, my, my, my drinking consisted of just constantly going, constantly going. The speed kept me from dropping over. And so I could just drink and drink and drink and drink. And sometime within a, I don't know, three or four day period, I might pass out for a while. But the rest of the time, I was up drinking. I would leave, you know, I'd sit and drink at this table until they were all gone, and then I'd stand up and go over there. And any time anybody changed a place, I'd always take my car and go last. I'd be the last guy. I always had my wheels under me in case everybody else crapped out. I'd go somewhere else. I drank, and I drank, and I drank. And the only way I stayed in college was that I had a smart little friend named Malcolm McHenry and the bug. We called him the bug, and the bug could teach algebra to an ape. And... And at Stanford University, he had his courses already aid in the first three weeks of the, of the quarter. So you, you paid the bugs some money. There were four or five of us. We paid the bugs some money. And he took us down to the basement. And he'd give us nothing but speed and coffee. And he could drill any subject in the world into our head long enough to take the final. See? Once we took the final and we got the grade, I used to get C, C minus Bs, and get through. Once we took the final, we didn't know the name of the course or the teacher or where the hell it was or a damn other thing about it. But we could take the final. So I existed there for about three years. And then I finally got a guilty conscience. You know, I thought I was just taking up space. And I wasn't playing ball anymore. And I was a loser. And I wasn't going anywhere anyway. So what the hell. So I quit college and got into show business. I'd been doing a little of that as I grew up. I did some radio shows with dads. And, and I did a radio. And I took over for him one summer. I had done a record one time. A two-sided hit. But he was on it too. And uh, my mother reminded me of that fact when she put the money in the bank. Said, I'm going back to school. And uh, I dabbled around in it, and, and I could sing a little, and I could act a little, and, uh, and so I got down in the show business, and I never forget my first agent said, "Well, you're a talented man. So you can act, and sing, you can do comedy. So we can start you almost anywhere." He said, "Let's start you in nightclubs." Okay, let me tell you, you start an alcoholic out working in a nightclub as a singer or a comic, and that's like giving the kids the keys to the candy store and going home. Because from the first day of rehearsal until the day you leave the club, there's a card table in your dressing room, and on it is a bottle of every kind of booze known to mankind. And the minute you empty one, there's a full one there again. And you don't have to pay for any of them. They just keep throwing it in there. They throw a bucket of ice on there and a few glasses, in case you've got some friends that want to come in. And that goes on all the time. Now, those of us who are alcoholics know you also develop... My, my, my trap was always that I never thought I was any good... I never thought I looked good. I never thought I sang good. I never thought I acted good. I never thought I did anything good. And here I am in a business where you've got to go around telling everybody you're the greatest thing that ever lived. And besides that, I've got that perfectionist thing that we all have. You know, I've got to do everything perfect or I'm a total failure. So every night that I performed, I set myself up for disaster. I never knew this. This is all hindsight for the time. Because every night I went out there, I had to be perfect. I had to be perfect or nothing. I was either perfect or a bum. I did an hour and 15 minutes of music and comedy, and I just went out there every night and I waited. And I waited to hit the one bad note or tell the one joke that didn't go. And that was it. When that happened, I was a failure. And I would come off stage night after night, people would say, great show, I'd say, bullshit. i shut them out of the way, I'd go in the dressing room, i shut the door, I'd spin the top off the vodka bottle and just down it. And then I'd sit in there cussing myself and calling myself every name in the book, 
telling myself what a bum I was, what a no good, no talent son of a bitch I was, and how as soon as they found out about me, as soon as the name value died out there, they would throw me out of business anyway, and then it would come second show time. And I'd go out there again. This time I'd miss three or four notes. Maybe a whole performance. Go bad. And that was a great reason to go in there and drink up the other bottles that I could find. And drink in the dressing room until the guy came around, the cleanup guy came around and threw you out. Then go find an after-hours club and sit in there and hate yourself and drink and drink and take speed and drink until noon, one o'clock the next day. Then go back to the hotel and flop down on the bed for a couple, three hours and get up. Knock the top off the vodka bottle, take a few shots, throw it up, take a few more shots, shower, shave, get a hamburger or something, go back to the club and start all over again. Once again, here I am again, folks, and my failure of success tonight. Failure, man, because you weren't 100%, and I had to be 100%. And I went after myself like this night after night. Day after same thing. When I got out of the clubs and I got into television and I got into movies, I always felt like I was supposed to have had this great storehouse of knowledge that my father had laid on me all these years. And people would talk to me about things and they'd use show business terms. And, and I would nod and go, oh, yeah, sure. Cool. Yeah, I know that. I know that stuff. You know. I don't know what the hell they were talking about. I didn't have to run someplace and find somebody that knew, that knew what the hell it was. And I, and I couldn't open up and, and bear my soul to them because then they'd know how dumb I was. So I used to have to just wing it and fake it and hope to God what I was guessing was right, you know. And I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank myself. I drank myself out of careers in nightclubs. I drank myself out of careers in television, in movies, in records. I did myself up every way there was. Everything everybody handed to me because my I was on the top. I started out with a big name. And the breaks they gave me, instead of being the genius like a friend of mine on the program has been with me since, told me how to handle it. Now I know. Instead of taking those opportunities and using them, I took them and threw them back in their face. I said, I don't want it for this. You either like me or you don't get me. You don't give me it for this. And I threw it back in their face. And I was an angry, hostile, hard-to-get-along-with individual. With enough talent to get by until finally I screwed up and started missing performances and missing days of work and stuff like that. And then I went down to shoot. And on the way down to shoot, I went to, I had a partial heart block one time. I was supposed to go to Vegas and work. And I went to, uh, the doctor told me I couldn't work. I said, I had to work for these guys and they don't take no for an answer. And he said, okay, I'll give you a shot of B12 and Dexedrine every night. You take that and invest the time you spend in your room. You don't drink. You don't move around. You don't take walks. You don't stay up all night. You don't do any of that or you die. So that's what I did. While I did that, I met a woman, fell in love with her. When I left there, we went and got her son in New York, moved down to L.A., got married, set up housekeeping, and, and the doctor's not letting me drink all this time. So she married me without ever knowing I drank. And then the doctor said, you're okay now. <laughs> Imagine that woman's surprise for the next 11 months. And my, my pattern was to, get, to drink every day. I'd have one drink one day, four the next, none the next. Six to next, but sometime in a 30-day period, I'd be gone for three days and three nights. And I'd come to in some town, someplace, uh, in some bed somewhere, looking at some buffalo that looked worse than me. And that was hard to do in them days, you know. And, you know, you can't, you can't call down to the desk and say, what town am I in? So you've got to go over to the, to pull the Bible out of the door and look in the flyleaf and see where the hell you are. And then you got to call home for money, and then you call home. And I tried to step out of an airplane and come out of back from Chicago. I tried to walk off an airplane at 39,000 feet and took everybody on the goddamn plane to hold me down. And when they landed that sucker, the police were there, and the sirens, and the whole routine, and the, and the bed, and they strapped me down, and strapped me in, into an ambulance, and strapped me into St. John's Hospital. And I woke up the next morning, and it, was, it looked like a grizzly bear with a white coat sitting there, just hair coming out of all over like this. And he said, we're going to be nice now. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
we're going to be very nice now. Yes, I, I could always do that. You know, when I, when, whenever I was stationed, whenever I was stationed in the blue suit with the shield, or anything like that, being tied down with a guy like that looking at me, I was always very accommodating until I could get loose. You know, until I could get loose. Anyway, after 11 months of this, my wife finally calls me into a lawyer's office and she says, I can't see you, I can't stand to see you destroy yourself. You gotta go away and dry out, never take another drink or use any speed, or it's over. Well, I kinda like the feeling that it build, been building those, those, those months. There because I had two people counting on me. I never had anybody count on me for anything before. It was just me. And the opinion I had of myself, I didn't want to do nothing for me anyway, so die. But I liked that feeling, so I didn't think I had a problem. But I said, okay, well, all right, I'll, I'll go away. It was just, she, she picked a place. Found out later she and the old man picked a place. They picked it back east, some dry out clinic back there, some rich man's dry out clinic, and I went back there. And uh, about all they taught me, about all I learned there was that I had a disease. And then, therefore, it would behoove me to do something about it. Uh, they were giving me therapy, and, uh, and I was painting pictures, and I was building trays, and I was, uh, uh, you know, and they gave me a lot of literature to read, amongst which is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Being the genius that I am, I picked that up, and I looked, and then I read all the stories in the back, but the first 164 pages looked like directions, and I didn't want to read that shit. That was boring, you know. So I, I didn't bother. I didn't bother with them. That, that was nothing, you know. That book sat on my shelf for the next 19 years. I never opened that sucker again. That's how smart I am. Anyway, I saw these guys there that were with me, and they'd go in on the weekends to New York and get drunk and everything, and they'd come back Monday and start all over again. So I knew the kind of situation I was in. It certainly wasn't. Nobody was getting well. So I got out of there, and I went home, and I told my wife, I ain't never going to drink or, or use again. And she said, yeah, sure. She'd heard that one before. So I didn't know, you know, but I wasn't going to go to AA. I was going to do it on my own. So I, then I just had to do it by... Whatever means possible, I could come up with my brain. I used to look at that look on her face whenever I'd leave the house. If I'm going here, I'm going there. And she'd go, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I became bound and determined to have her lose that look. I didn't know how I was going to do it, except I decided one way is to just keep coming back straight. You may get away, it may, you may lose it in 30 years, you may not, lady, but by God, you're never going to see me drink again. And I just kept going out and coming back straight. Finally, after a couple of years, I'm dancing, I'm going to, going to the gym. She said, okay. And then I knew it was gone. Now I convinced her I wasn't going to use drinking use anymore. At least she felt that way. But what I had, what I had now, I was a full-blown alcoholic, but I haven't got the program. So I think everything's going to go back to rocket to start in time. See, everybody always told me when I was drinking and using, man, you stop drinking and using, you're going to be a star. you got a lot of talent. Everything's going to... I said, well, that's nice. So I stopped drinking and using waiting for the phone to ring. See? And, and I said, well, you know, I said to myself, yeah, I'd, I'd known some other guys that had happened to us. Well, you know, you stop drinking, you use it, and then the word gets around, you stop, and then everybody, somebody takes a chance on you, and they see that you're okay, and then everybody hires you again. Nothing could be further from the truth. And they got long memories, and as well they should have, you know. And uh, there was one man who helped me, Jack Webb, who, uh, Jack Webb had, had a, a policy of hiring when he hired you. If you knew, if, if you were trouble and he hired you and you didn't get him any trouble, he hired you again. He kept hiring me until you gave him trouble. Then he never hired you again. Well, he hired me, and I never gave him any trouble, so he kept hiring me. But he was the only one that would give me any work. And I couldn't get any work, and I couldn't get going again. I couldn't get that uphill thing going again. That rocket to stardom time, you know, and I kept praying to God. I was, man, I got tight with the church. I tried every single solitary thing for the next 19 years to live a happy and successful life that was out there. I tried every kind of therapy, gestalt, encounter, uh, Freudian. I tried... Uh, 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 magic power of believing, the magic power of your mind, the magic power of your left arm, the magic power, you know, all the John Robert Powers books. I tried psycho-cybernetics. I tried positive thinking. I tried all that stuff while I was blue in the face, and man, none of it worked. And every time a job would come up, 
I'd be up for it. I'd do that with the job. It could take me and start me going. I'd say, please, God, please give me that. Just give me that. That'll fix it. Just give me that one. Give me this one. And I'd get tighter and tighter with my religion and tighter. I'd go to daily confession and daily communion. And I'd pray all day and I'd pray all night. And I'd just get, if it was always between me and some other guy, and get that close till I was full out like this, and I'd get jerked away. That kept happening over and over and over. Then there would be some kind of a part where I didn't even have to go in to read. It was one line or a cross or something, you know, one day's work. I'd get that. And so in my insanity, my crazed mind, it started to build up in my head. And God was going to make me pay the second half of my life for the first half of my life. And by God, I wasn't going to play that game. So then I started to isolate. And I shut the door. I didn't go out of my house except to go to readings, which I knew I was going to fail at. And go to the gym, go to the grocery store. And that's all I did. And I kept telling my wife and my kids, ain't you, I hate them bastards out there, man. I can't stand it. Every day that I woke up and didn't have a job, I was, I was in my mind what they thought I was out there, which was a rich man's kid sucking up his old man's money with no talent and no desire and no willingness to do anything. And I knew they had that picture of me, and that isn't the picture I, and I gagged at that picture, so every day I woke up, man, I was furious. I was furious. Always angry. The rage built and built and built. Man, die for my five feet of the freeway? That freeway was mine when I was on that sucker. Anybody looked at me, I used to go in places and just wait for people to say something wrong. Somebody looked at me for longer than two seconds, and I stared right back at them. If they came across the room, I met them halfway. That was the kind of attitude I had. Well, I didn't have many friends. I scared a lot of people. I scared a lot of people away. And this is how I lived for 19 years. Until finally my wife called me in and said, that's it. I can't take the cynicism. I can't take the negativism. I can't take the anger anymore. We're getting a divorce. And so then I was I was sitting in a little joint apartment that I rented, and the two things I thought I'd done good is be a father and be a be a husband. And now I realized I hadn't done that good either. So now I do a, I did some movie, uh, some little part in No Lines, and I met a girl there, and we set up some light housekeeping. And, uh, and first thing you know, I, I couldn't breathe. I'd go play tennis, and, and I couldn't get my second wind. I start carrying groceries up from, uh, from downstairs in the condo. And I, I couldn't get my second wind. I'd be laying watching television at night, and I'd have to take a deep breath like that. She says, what the hell is that? I'd have to take a deep breath like that. She says, what the hell is that? I said, ah, get me old, I guess. She said, no, no, no. I said, just go to the doctor. I said, I'm not going. She said, go to the doctor. It's okay, for change. I don't know why this time, but I listened. I went to the doctor. The doctor listened here. He didn't like what he heard. He sent me to the heart doctor, and the heart doctor gave me the angiogram. We look at your heart pumping, and if I'm dying, it, and we look at it. And two days later, I was in San Francisco Presbyterian Hospital, and I was there for a triple bypass. I had 95% blockage in two of my arteries and 65% in another. And the doctor sat on the end of my bed after all the tests that he gave me, and he says, you're, you have no cholesterol problem. You have no triglyceride problem. He says, you're here for two reasons, smoking and anger. How many times a day do you get angry? I said, I wake up in the morning and know I'm going to have to fight somebody, and the rest of the day I'm just trying to find out who the hell it is. He says, that's, that's real cute dialogue. He said, but you know what you're doing to yourself? I said, no. He says, every time that you get angry, and I was thinking in my head, that's about 150 times a day, every time you do, you pump adrenaline and noradrenaline through your system, and that stuff nicks the inside of your veins pretty soon. And then the cholesterol you do have falls in the nicks, and then you get the same effect as if you had touched. The, the cholesterol and the triglyceride problem. He says, now I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you this operation. I'm going to take a vein out of your leg and I'm going to put it in there. And he says, you're going to have a young man's veins. He says, but I'll guarantee you one thing. He wasn't on the program. He says, if you don't alter your attitudes, you're going to die in three years anyway. He says, nobody can get as mad as you get as often as you get and live. 
I don't know what the hell he was talking about. I alter added what? I alter what? Attitude. I I'll tell you, that night, I'm sitting up there waiting to go down to have this operation. And they shaved your body. They shave you from here down for this operation. Anybody here have they ever had an operation where you have your whole body shaved? That ain't your body when you look down. That's not you. You don't know who gave you this body, but this ain't the one you came in with. That's the funniest. You, and you don't want anybody else to ever see it either. That's, that's, and then they give you some stuff called betadine, which is like a, a, a brownish uh, yellow uh, soap that you have to uh, shower with twice, and it stays on you, this stuff. So when you finish doing that, you look you look like a barbecue chicken. Stand there in the middle of the room. That takes a whole lot of ego out of you, I'll tell you right then. So I'm up there in the bed, and it's getting to be 4 or 5 in the morning. I'm going down at 7. I haven't slept yet. I'm still smoking. You know, I was cute. As they put me on the gurney, I said, okay, guys, just go downstairs. Like that, you know, I had to do some comedy. But while I was laying there, I started to get real afraid. I looked up to heaven, and I said to God, you know all this talk I've been giving you all these years about not giving a shit if I live or die? Forget that. <laughs> I said, no, no. I said, no, I, I want to live. I want to live. So I'll go to work at that change in the attitude thing. You know, once again, I'm dealing, you know. Victor, the operation goes, all right, and I'll do what they say. <laughs> I'm making deals with God again. Okay, God, here's the, here's the deal. So, I had the operation. I came out of there. I went down to L.A. Started to work physically to get back to shape. And then I got to this woman, psychiatrist down there, psychologist who, who only deals, if you're an alcoholic or an addict, she won't talk to you until you get on the program. But she knew me. So she got me in, and she got me hooked on her and her method, and she got me hooked in the group for about a month. And then she said to me, you're too angry. you got to go to AA. I said, what the hell am I? I said, I haven't had a drink or a fix in 19 years, and my life's still a bag of garbage. What the hell am I going to learn at AA? I said, I already know how to smoke and, and, and drink coffee. I already know that shit. I said, yeah. She says, I can't tell you. You've got to go find out. I said, ah, that's shrink talk. I know that stuff. I've been a lot of you guys. I said, you tell me what I have to do and what I'm going to learn there. And if I like it, then I'll go. And then she took the bull by the horns. And she said, I tell you what, I love you, but if you don't go, if you haven't gone by next week meeting this time, you can't come here anymore. My entire life had been spent with people giving me ultimatums like that. If, you, if they said to me, don't do that, I did it. If they said, do that, I didn't do it. And for some reason or another, once again, I don't know why, I listened. Now, all the time that I've been out there on that 19-year dry drunk, and talking to people about being a drunk and not being a drunk anymore, and they'd come up to me, youth groups, I'd die of the ego, Jesus, God. I was talking to people about this, and they'd come up inevitably and say, well, how are you staying sober? I said, don't do it my way. I said, I'm sober because I'm convinced there's about 15, 20 people out there in my business just waiting for me to get drunk again so they can say, see, I told you it wasn't worth shit, and I ain't never going to give them the satisfaction. <laughs> I said, however, that may not be good enough for you, so what you do is go to AA. AA will fix you. AA, don't worry. AA, AA. I must have spent 2,500 people in 19 years to AA. Everybody but me I sent to AA. Finally, I had to call one of them. I said, what the hell goes on at those meetings down there? You guys said. He says, I can't tell you. You've got to come find out. <laughs> I knew he wasn't a shrink. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I can't explain it over the phone. You've got to come and see. So once again, I listened. And I went five years and about ten months ago. And I walked through the doors of clubhouse called Radford in North Hollywood. And I was one of the lucky ones. It started working for me right away. I don't know why. See, I'm a lot of I don't know why. I'm not too smart. I ain't no rocket scientist. I'm smart enough to know that I'm dumb. See, 
I walked through those doors and 45 seconds later I knew I was where I should have been my whole goddamn life. Suddenly I was with my people. I was with the people who felt about things the way I did. I had all the thoughts and fears that I had all my life and I thought made me different and put me on the outside looking in, comparing my insides with everybody else's outsides and, and coming up lacking, always never feeling a part of, always feeling a stranger. I heard all that coming out of people's mouths. Everybody that got up there to share. I heard my life story over and over and over again. I knew I was with the people I belonged with. I knew I finally was someplace where I had a shot at maybe living. But I never understood people or life or any other damn thing up to then. And that really impressed me. And I went home that day after we had been to a meeting. It was half an hour early. And we went to the meeting. And we went to coffee afterward. And I got home that day. I walked in the door. I shut the door. I took two steps in. And I stopped dead in my tracks because I realized something that was incredible. From the time I was a little kid on, I ever had to be, see, I've been scared to death of life and reality and, and people all my life and never able to cop to it. Never understood it, never knew I was, because I'm a man-child, see. In my day, no man-child ever said he was afraid. You didn't say it to your mama, your daddy, your brother, your sister, your girlfriend, your best pal, nobody. See, you know, no afraid. You could be mad, though. And that's what I was all the time, was mad, see. And I heard people talking about it. And every time that I ever ran into two people, if it was two people or more that I didn't know, I did a guy. I did a character. I had a guy who was kind of a cross between Fat Jack Leonard and Don Ripples. And I did, got him out here and did him. Now, he wasn't too pleasant a guy. He was funny at times and not too funny at times. He irritated a lot of people. But I could tell, lay back here and watch and see who I was going to have trouble with out there while you all focused on this loudmouth. See? And he'd carry on like this out here, and I could hide back here and not show you me. And I came in my house that day, took two steps in the door and stopped dead, and I realized this guy was second nature. I realized I'd been with all strangers but one person all day. And that guy had never come up that whole goddamn day. That, that character had never done. And that, see, that then is when I knew I had a hold of something, something good, something maybe I had a chance at. And I kept going back. They said, keep coming back. So I kept going back. And we started dealing with me. And we started dealing with my anger and stuff. And I started listening. When I came through those doors, I was willing. See, God in his infinite wisdom and mercy knew me. I'm convinced of this. And I knew he knew that I'm the kind of guy, he must have said, stood up there and said, I can't show this dummy the right door right off the bat. Because he'll, he'll walk in there and the first thing goes wrong, he'll throw it out the window and walk out. So what I'm going to have to let this dummy do is walk through life and bang his head on every goddamn wall and wrong door there is in the place until finally he gets to this one. Then he'll think he found it and then he'll go, go for it. See? <laughs> and, and that's what I did. And when I came through the door, I had... Something called willingness, because I had tried everything else and couldn't make it happy in life. And here I heard people talking and thinking like I thought I was the only one that did. So they were my people, and here they all were, man. And they were talking happy. They were talking relatively calm and relatively serene. And they weren't saying the world was a, was a, a, a bowl of cherries and everything was wonderful and sweet and grand and everything. They were saying, hey, man, life's a drive, but, but I can make it. And that's what caught me. I said, yeah? Because I always thought life is a drag and I'll never make it. I listened to all these people talking. I thought, well, they know what the hell they're They seem to know. So I made up my mind I was going to do whatever they told me to do in there. See? And crazy as they it's not nuts to me. Because I'd already been impressed with the fact that my best thinking got me outside the doors of AA. That's how good my head was. That's how good I, I worked. And when I first said, well, I can manage my life fine, the guy says, really look at it. And I looked back and said, whoa, that's the best management I could do? So when I came through there, I was willing to listen. And it was, you know, get naked and sit on the flagpole and come, come to Jesus. I'd have done it. See, no matter how crazy it sounded, because these people seemed to know what the hell they were talking about. I knew I didn't. I didn't know nothing about living or loving 
or, or being a fellow human being or being near anybody or anything. I didn't know nothing about that. I, I hated me. I hated God. I hated you guys. I was suspicious of everybody and everything. I thought life was a, was a practical joke by God. He's doing a joke on we're the butts of it. And that's how I felt about it. And we started dealing with my anger, which was the thing that was killing me. And I kept telling people, you know, it's, it, it just kind of flashes up on the back of my, my head. And now I've got a hold of somebody and I'm wailing on them before I can even stop. And it comes just one word. Something like that will happen this fast. And they started telling me things to do. And I, and I said, look, you don't understand. I don't have the time to do those things. I don't have the time to think, is this guy worth 15 seconds of my life? I don't have time to think, an alcoholic can't afford resentments. I don't have time to think anger is a big killer. For, I don't have that time. And one old guy says, well, then pray for the instant you need to give to think those things. And he says, and don't wait for the fight to pray. To go home now and start praying. And pray every day. And I started doing that. It's five years and ten months and I haven't hit nobody in that time. I've been angry. But I have never yet failed to get that instant that I need. To say, wait, you don't, you got a choice. You don't have to react this way anymore. And like I said earlier, I first came in contact. Once we started dealing with my anger and how to, how to not control it, but how to get rid of it and how to lessen it. I found a secret for me that works wonders. Because like I said before, I was never able to cop to fear. Now every time I can get up in front of a meeting of alcoholics and say, I'm scared, folks. I'm scared to death of life and living and people and everything else. But I'm still stoking. I'm going to try. Every time I talk about that fear, every time I get up and cop to that fear, another layer of that anger goes away. And I'm not well, but I'm sure a whole hell of a lot better than I used to be in that area. The period, whenever that anger flashes, I automatically get the instant to say, hold it, that's your old reaction. You don't have to do that anymore if you don't want to. So what's happening is the periods that I get angry are shorter and shorter and shorter, and they're happening less and less. And the more I understand that all my anger is fear-based, and that now that I've got a God, as I understand him, four important words on this program, God as I understand him, i got a God now that's the best buddy. See, he's not the just punishing old God that I used to have. And the God, as I understand him, says, you don't have to be perfect. And I forgive you. If you do wrong, make amends and do your best to do right from then on and it's going to be okay. See, so I've got a new God now. And, I, and I'm with him. And I relate to him. And he relates to me. And it's a more of a feeling of, of love than of, geez, I've got to hide from this dude because he's going to kill me if I look sideways. You know. I deal with him and I realize that fear, I have no, I can't have God in here and have fear in there too. Fear can't dwell where God is because if you really believe in the third step on this program, which is turning your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him, if you really believe and do that, then what the hell have you got to be afraid about? Your life is in the hands of an infinite power, all-powerful being who loves you to infinity, who only wants the best for you. So if something is making you afraid now, it's because it's something you don't want. And your wants are not important when it comes to God's wants. The whole, all that praying and stuff that I was doing out there when I was telling guys about that praying for this job and that job and the other thing, one guy said, did you ever think you praying for the wrong thing? I said, what the hell do you mean? I No, I said, I did what they told me to do. I got confession and communion and I did everything and I prayed for what I wanted and I didn't get it. He said, you ain't supposed to pray for what you want. I said, what the hell am I supposed to pray for? He said, pray for what God wants for you. Jeez, that went off like a rocket in my head. That thought never occurred to me. Suddenly I started realizing that what I want don't, doesn't matter because he's running my life. 
And as long as he's running my life, the best that can happen for me is going to happen. Now, if it's something I want, it's going to look ugly to him. But I don't get it. But what I stop to realize is the fact that I've got a guy running my life now who can see around the corner in the future. And I can't see that. And I may have something unpleasant to deal with here. And in five years, this has happened a lot of times. I've dealt with that here and got six months, eight months down the road, a year down the road, something good has happened. I've looked back and said, oh, Christ, if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have got here. So that's the way he works in my life. I don't have to understand him. If he's handing me something that to me is unpleasant, that's my problem. It's unpleasant because I think it's unpleasant. And the two words I don't use anymore are I think and I want. Say, if I'm an alcoholic and this is broken, this does not work. Say, this does not work. Left alone in a room with this, I will self-destruct in about an hour and a half. All that thinking comes back. All that, I'm no good. That, that committee waits on the bedpost for me every morning. You're no good. You're too short. You're too fat. You're too ugly. You're too bald. You can't sing good enough. You haven't got enough talent. And what the hell are you doing here? I say, good morning. Because <laughs> I know what it is now. And I just sit about systematically taking the program, working the steps, doing what they tell me, and beating that committee to death all day, see? I don't have a job. Now it's because God don't want me to work today. He's got something for me to do. So I go ahead and do some footwork, make a few phone calls. Nothing's happening. I go to a meeting. I go to a noon meeting. Where, whereupon, nine times out of ten, I will run into somebody that I will share with and I will learn something or I will impart something to him that will help him. I work with others. Suddenly my self-worth is a hundred thousand times more than it ever used to be. I like me now. I like what I'm doing now. The old thing of becoming a star and be having the big number one and the records and the thing and all that. I, I want to be a children. That's what I do. That's, that's where I figure God gave me some talents in that area. But it's not that big a deal anymore. Because what I've learned here is as long as I concentrate on my primary purpose, and my primary purpose is to stay sober and help another alcoholic, that's God's work for me. When he said to me, when they say to me, that's my primary purpose, that means over. That means over making money, over show business, over everything. The primary purpose is why I'm here. This is what I'm here for. I find that when I start taking care of that and not getting self-involved about all the other crap, am I a hit or a miss, am I a star or not, how long has it been since I worked, where's my agent, where's my man, who you, leave all that shit alone. As long as I'm doing what he says, suddenly they all in parts fall into the picture every day just, just where they're supposed to. Everything just happens. And I look, hell, that day's gone by and I've, I've probably helped, I've probably done, I know I've done what he's wanted me to do. See, and I've, I've probably helped somebody along the way that I wouldn't be able to be there to do that for if I had been working. I usually can find the reason every day I don't have a job because he's usually got something for me to do. And my life to, to me today is interesting. See, now by all normie standards out there, you look at my life and I'm a failure. But I don't judge myself that way anymore. I judge myself by the way you judge yourself on the program. I've learned to do that. And I'm the best Gary Crosby today I've ever been. See, the only thing in the outside. When I, when I look at the circumstances, the only thing that's changed in my life, as far as the outside area, the world of success or whatever you want to call it goes, is the area of my relationships. I'm, I met a wonderful woman on the program who's got as much time as I do. We got married uh my relationship area is idyllic. She's, it's just like being married to a walking big book, you know. You can't, 
You can't do nothing anymore. You can't do your shit no more at all. Man, you start to go to the anger thing, and all of a sudden you got somebody looking at you like, oh, really? You know, I wonder when this dummy's going to remember to work the program. You know, and right away it clicks in, you start working the program, so you don't get away with nothing anymore. See? Nothing else has changed. Money's gone, career's still in the dumper. I get a job every now and then, just enough to pay the, insurance, pay the insurance, and I got my notification that I got the chair out at the motion picture home whenever I'm ready to get in it, you know. <laughs> so it's all about the same as it always was. But inside my own skin, I turned around. There's no big deals to that anymore. The big deal today is that I remain sober, and every day that I remain sober and clean, I'm a winner. And every day that I remain sober and clean, my life works. And every day that I remain sober and clean and help another alcoholic, I'm, I'm fulfilling my primary purpose in life today. And that makes me feel good about me. And that makes me feel good about God as I understand it. And that makes me love, and when I say love, I mean the word love, my fellow alcoholics. When I'm talking about love, I'm not, I'm not being a simp. I'm not saying, hey, I love everybody, you know, in the meeting house. That may not be true. I may not like you. I have the kind of love that, that, that transcends that. Because I have the kind of love, you call, you in, the, you in the program, and you need not to drink or use it, you call my number, and I will stop you from drinking or using it for that period of time. Because I know every single soul out there, whether they like me or not, will give me that same unconditional love back when I call them. When I'm at the point in my life, as they say happens to you, where no human power can stop you from taking that drink or using it. Right there is when I pick up the phone, I know there's going to be somebody on the other end, along with God, that will stop me from ready to use it. This program is my life now. I hope to be, I hope to be on it till the day I die. I know I can only stay sober one day at a time, just like the rest of you. I'm only one drink away from disaster. And that keeps me, that keeps me thinking. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad you asked me to talk to you today. And uh, if you're like me, just keep coming back because it gets better. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.